0: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And we're joined for today's New Statesman podcast by Henry Mance from the FT to discuss his new book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. We're delighted to be joined by the FT's chief features writer, Henry Mance, to speak about his new book, which is out now called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And readers may know Henry for his brilliant features in the FT and also as one of the main writers of the iconic Lunch with the FT format. Thanks so much for joining us, Henry. Oh, thanks for
1: having me. And thanks for that uh, very kind introduction. Yeah, really nice to be on the pod.
0: So what was the premise for writing your book? Because it's a book about how we live with animals, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think there are lots of books which say, you know, what animals do for you and how animals will make your life richer, whether it's sort of going bird watching or having a pet dog or, you know, the things that the way our microbes might benefit us from nature. And I think those books are all great. But this is more a book thinking if you were an animal, what would you want humans to, if you were another animal, what would you want humans to change in their behavior? And how how would you want to be treated almost? And I guess it grew out of, I mean, I am a sort of animal lover. And I had a pet dog when I was younger, and have like looking at animals. But then once I went and I went and saw puffins just off the Northumbria coast. And I was thinking these puffins are amazing. I was taking loads and loads of pictures of them. And then this kid, on the way back on the boat, this really quiet kid went, I love the Puffins, probably not exactly in that accent. And I thought, oh, yeah, I really love Puffins too, but I haven't actually done anything (laughs) to make their life better. And so I was thinking, how could I sort of actually put my love for animals into practice? And then when I had kids, you just have all these soft toys, all these storybooks with like animal characters. And you, I mean, it wasn't that I was felt, I was like perpetuating this great lie, but I thought I was telling my, my daughters that animals were really important and that they might, infer from all the time we spent reading animal stories that I had worked out some kind of ethic for how to treat animals. So then I thought, can I find a way of living with animals that I can pass on to my daughters and that may make me feel better about taking pictures of them and sort of loving watching them.
0: So how did you set about doing that? Because there's quite a bit of sort of gonzo journalism in the book, isn't that? You you go to work in, in an abattoir and on a farm to try and see Sort of animals, perhaps in in some of their more difficult environments.
1: Yeah, I, I went to work in an abattoir, which is which was pretty easy back then, just before Brexit had been implemented. You know, and the book is is not really saying that people who work in the livestock industry are um, bad people. In fact, it's really not saying that. You know, the pig farmer I went to work with was an absolutely lovely guy. But uh, you know, these people are in a in a cycle, and they they think they have to produce meat because people buy it. People who buy meat assume it's okay because someone's produced it. And I think if we all stopped and sort of reflected and said, well, is this really entirely necessary? We might come to a different conclusion. We might be able to stop the the cycle. I was able to draw together lots of things from my life. Um, I lived in Colombia and South America for a few years and had seen the, the wonders of, of sort of giving large tracts of land to indigenous people and how that how that really helps conservation in the Amazon. But then also what the peace deal in Colombia has actually done to conservation, which is it's given people the security to go and cut down lots of forests. So yeah, I was able to sweep up all those things because it's about the meat industry, but it's about hopefully more than that. It's about fishing, it's about hunting, it's about how you save some of the, you know, million species that are thought to be threatened with extinction. And then how you also reconcile that with loving your, your cat and dog and spending thousands of pounds maybe on their their medical treatment.
2: So on that point, Henry, about spending a lot of money on your cat and dog, I want to ask you more about the sort of the journey that you go on in, in the book in a minute. But I kind of want to ask you something topical on this question, because it feels relevant. Obviously, in the past few weeks, as part of the unfolding horror in Afghanistan, there has been this sort of sub story around the evacuation of Ten Farthing's dogs from Afghanistan and this sort of push from parts of the media and some members of the public for his pets to be evacuated and ultimately it looks as though they were evacuated potentially at the expense of other humans even though those pets would have been in the hold so there's still kind of a question over it but it means that we've had a conversation I suppose in the UK over the past few weeks skirting around some of the issues that you talk about in the book, but I suppose specifically whether there's a sort of British or specifically English dimension to this kind of inconsistent relationship to and with animals. I'm always struck not being English, <laughs> that there are like some English people are quite reserved in lots of their human interactions. And are much colder with members of their family than, than they are with their pets, who they show uh, it's just loads of warmth and affection in a way that you never really see in any other context. I'm just wondering if, over the course of this book, you ended up developing a sort of sense of like, the English cultural relationship with animals,
1: that's a fascinating question. Yeah, I don't have a specific answer. Part of the book is written in California, where people are also crazy about dogs. But I think you're right. That is part of a perhaps a slightly different culture where whether the sort of the reserved, slightly cold English nature, the flip side of that is a sort of an expression of love for animals. I'm not sure. I mean, what is certainly true is that Britain and particularly England have been at the forefront of like thinking about animal welfare since you know the late 18th century you know the setup of the what became the RSPCA which was then sort of copied around the world including in America and then yeah Peter Singer the Australian philosopher he came up with the idea of animal liberation in the in the 70s while a student at Oxford University so you know Britain has been at the forefront of animal welfare in, in lots of ways. And I think the laws are very progressive here in, in many ways. I, I don't know whether that's directly linked to our cultural or sort of our weirdness in other respects. The pen-farthing thing, I think, is interesting. Like, obviously, on a trade-off between a person and a dog, I feel it's not a complicated scenario, that, you know, the person takes priority. And, and that's the simple answer. The more complicated answer, I think, is that in practice... We all put our pets ahead of other human beings who we don't know. Anyone with a pet is spending quite a lot of money on that pet, which they could be giving to an anti-malaria charity or some other kind of healthcare charity for the developing world and saving lives. And in fact, we decide to give huge amounts of money, billions in the UK to our pets. And so we do, through our wallets, value them more than we value other humans. In fact, in some surveys, if you ask people whether they'd rather save their dog, or a foreign tourist, quite a large minority say they've saved their dog. So proximity comes before the, the species barrier in that case. I, I feel that Penfarthing probably, the link is sufficiently direct that I don't think you can say that his 150 or 150 so dogs and cats were saved at the expense of lives because, you know, whether the Taliban was actually letting people through to the airport for me is not clear. You know, Richard Danner, the former head of the army, said, he thought it was marginal and probably didn't have any impact, and that the real problem with the evacuation operation was that it didn't start earlier and it hadn't been planned properly. So I, I would be inclined to to say it's sufficiently indirect. But I wondered whether this moment was going to end the Geronimo the alpaca moment. It was going to be a moment where finally our love for animals had become too ridiculous or had been taken too far. <laughs> all the the Larry the cat stuff, the Dylan the dog, MPs having their dog show at Westminster, all of that. Maybe it had gone a bit too far. I mean, what I try and argue in the book is, it's great. I mean, like the fact that we love dogs and cats is brilliant, because it really shows a compassion and a willingness to, to help animals who even a generation ago, we might have sort of taken out back and, and shot when they became a bit lame. On the other hand, it is completely disproportionate how we're prepared to take care of those animals, but not take care of farm animals, and also not take care of endangered species, or even to accommodate lynx in, in, in sort of parts of Scotland. We're more than happy to have millions of dogs, but we couldn't possibly have a few wolves in <laughs> Scotland either. So I, I sort of argue that it might be possible to extend or, or to take some of the love we feel from our pets and to extend it to other animals. But I, I think it'd be wrong to demonise pen farthing.
3: What, what I thought was sort of interesting about it, so I want... You know, and I, I'd like to make clear I'm not sort of in favour cruelty towards animals, but someone who has <laughs> primarily become more and more um, guilty in my meat eating because of my concern for you know the planet as a whole. The thing I found I find very persuasive about it, having not finished it but having very much enjoying so far, is is the stuff about just how, how destructive it is and also just how unpleasant they are, place they are to work. While continuing to find it a bit bizarre that yeah we are a country in which it is politically controversial whether or not an alpaca with bovine TB should be put down following a test, yet, you know, badgers who have received no such courtesy, and indeed, actually, the average that we describe as having bovine TV has never actually been tested. And yeah, I guess it's kind of the same question with, with the sort of climate stuff. You've written also about yeah, the kind of weirdness of us being kind of asleep at the wheel as a political class on this. How much for you, obviously, you started out a vegetarian, you're now a vegan, how much for you is, is the climate stuff a central issue to being a vegetarian and now a vegan. And why do you think that there is this weird gap between, yeah, you know, how much we love dogs, how upset we get about alpacas, we think piglets are cute, and yet we are willing to keep eating them at a scale that the planet simply cannot endure?
1: Yeah, I th- exactly. I mean, look, Geronimo the alpaca is, is sadly no longer with us, but nor are you know, more than 10 million sheep will die this year. So I agree, it's like completely disproportionate. For me, the climate stuff is is really a no brainer. You know, with the animal welfare stuff, there are big philosophical questions about what is a good life? And does a pig on a farm have a good life? And I think certainly in the most intensive forms of farming, that's pretty easy to answer, like a, a female pig who can't turn around for a large proportion of her life is not living a good life and that should not be acceptable. But, you know, an organic beef cow, you know, it's an okay life. And and it's sort of philosophical questions of whether it's better to have that life and then die w- within certain constraints than not to have it at all. And okay, there is a complexity there. With the with the climate and, and land use questions of, of meat, for me, it's just a complete no-brainer. And the statistic I come back to is that, which I think sort of gives some sense of it, is, you know, on average, you're recommended to eat 50 grams of protein a day. Now, globally... To get that from land, you would need 90 metres squared. To get that from cheese, you'd need 20 metres squared. To get it from pork, you need five metres squared. To get it from peas, you just need two metres squared. And to get it from tofu, just one metre squared. So you can really shrink our footprint on this planet and free up lots of land for carbon storage, lots of land for biodiversity, if you just shift away. The fact that we're not doing that, well, these days I meet lots of people who are doing that and who say they eat very little meat or are on a path to doing it. And I'm sort of encouraged. And I feel like we might be at a tipping point. But clearly, there's no shame in eating meat. and No one gets embarrassed about it, you know, a dinner party and our tastes are acquired pretty young. And I sort of feel I feel a bit disappointed that lots of vegetarian parents feel that they can't pass on their vegetarian diet to their kids because they're not quite sure about nutrition. I mean, I feel like we shouldn't be bringing up kids today to eat the same thing that we did, because it's it's just very unsustainable. We could chop a really large percentage of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, perhaps, you know, maybe even 10% if everybody shifted to a vegan diet. Now that's not going to happen. But we could still do, you know, a lot better than we are now, where meat consumption is, is pretty flat, maybe reduced a little bit in in rich countries per capita, but is sort of escalating elsewhere.
0: That's so interesting, because one of the Arguments in the sort of climate debate, and Allegra Stratton, the COP 26 spokesperson, got got quite a lot of stick for this. Is how much sort of focus should be on personal responsibility and lifestyle changes and these kind of things? And you know, there's a lot of pushback from that from many climate campaigners because so many carbon emissions are caused by just a handful of fossil fuel companies. How did you grapple with that tension, sort of on on your journey of writing the book? Yeah, my book, I guess,
1: if I wanted to be I write a damning review of my book, I would say this focuses very much on individual solutions and doesn't go into the corporate side of it. And, you know, maybe I'll go on an an anonymous user on Amazon and write that criticism uh, (laughs) of my own. But but the reason it doesn't is because I was partly trying to work out an ethos for myself that I could pass Mm. on to my daughters. But it's it's also because I believe that on this question of meat, then actually we need some behavior change before we can bring the heavy lifting of politics into play. Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy has a target of reducing meat consumption by 30 percent by 2030 but it doesn't really have any strong tools for bringing that into play because it knows how controversial it would be. And while you have more than 95% of the population eating meat, it's very difficult to have sort of taxes on those that make people potentially feel guilty for eating meat. And I think if you look at smoking, the really heavy moves against smoking came after a lot of people had had sort of opted out. So, you know, once most people aren't smoking, then it's easier to ban smoking in pubs once it's sort of one in 10 people. Then, then you can say, look, you guys have got to go outside for a cigarette. Like, if we got to a place where 20 or 30% of people had opted out of meat consumption, then I think it would be far easier for politicians to say, right, schools are going to be vegan or vegetarian three days a week, hospitals are going to do the same, and we're going to have this tax. As it is, the changes are coming very much through supermarkets sort of thinking about what their customers want and also about the emissions of the food they sell. I do believe that corporate action, and I say in the book, you know, voting, you know, you've got to vote with climate change in mind. And I look at something like the Canadian election, where it's all about Trudeau, but really should it all be about climate. And so I do believe in in the politics and the, and the corporate action of it. But in fact, some of the people I met who were most committed to sort of personal action and personal behaviour change were Extinction Rebellion people who saw no contradiction between personal behaviour change and political campaigning. And certainly I don't. I mean, I think, I think if you're like someone like Justin Welby, who said today he was he cutting down on meat consumption, that personal change gives you legitimacy to feed into whatever you, you tell corporations to do or the government to do.
0: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
3: Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th, available now on the
1: World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com Germany.
3: So hopefully people want to read this book and at least you know have a conversation about sustainability and whether or not we are eating and, and living ethically. But if someone listens to this and they're already so persuaded that and after they bought the book and they're, they're even more so, obviously one of the fun things about eating less meat are all the exciting different ways you can cook with vegetables. God, I've become a parody of myself. Mm-hmm. Tell
2: them well, about your veg box, Stephen.
3: I have really sad news about my veg box, which is our veg box delivery driver has, has died. So we're doing a collection for him. It's very sad because, you know, He's a really lovely guy. He's been with the company since it was founded. It was the first veg box company in London. And I think actually in the UK, therefore, founded in 1994. It's great. Farm around. You should get it. They are one of the few veg box companies who aren't perplexed by this thing called a flat, which a surprising number of them are like an entry phone. What is this? Well, this is unearthly science. One of my real favourite vegetarian cookbooks is Anna Jones. And uh, Claudia Roden's new cookbook, Med, has lots and lots of wonderful vegetarian recipes. So Henry, what are your sort of preferred vegetarian and vegan recipes? And what tips would you give people who are seeking to cut meat out of their diets a bit?
1: I'm a big fan of Anna Jones and her sort of proper chilli, which has a bit of cocoa powder and various different grains in. I think that's uh, like a brilliant starting place. Basically, I'm going to say four steps, which I think are helpful if you're trying to cut down on meat. First is, Stephen, you're absolutely right. Get a veg box, because that gives you a a sort of changing supply of vegetables. And I think particularly if you're shopping online, you just get into ruts of ordering the same thing and then feeling like there's nothing out there. But I sort of force myself when I get the veg box on Sunday morning to like go and roast some vegetables. And it's a really gets you into a really good routine that makes sure there's stuff there. So get a veg box, get a cookbook. Uh, number two, like Q. Fernley Whittingstall's Veg and More Veg. I think they're called. I think that's great. There's a, a brilliant ratatouille in a book called How to Go Vegan Without Losing Your Friends, which my former FT colleagues gave me. Actually, after knowing me for quite a long time, so maybe they thought I needed that one. And the third is, I think you need to do it in stages. I think if you like, well, you read my book, but read another book or see like see Spiracy or something, and decide right, I'm going to completely change my diet. I think that's really hard to do on a sustainable basis. I think it's much easier to cut out stage by stage, at least I did. So, you know, you might want to start ordering vegetarian or ordering vegan when you go out to restaurants. And I think that's a good step because, you know, outside the home, we eat a disproportionate amount of our meat and fish because it's sort of seen as that's what's got to be a proper meal. But actually now, if you go to a restaurant, they will do a really good vegetarian meal and it sort of takes the stress out of it for you. And then actually you might go home and find there's no meat in the fridge anyway. So that might be one stage. Or you could start by cutting out chicken because chicken have terrible welfare standards or, or, start, or cut out beef because, you know, beef is in methane terms pretty bad. But whatever I do, I do it stage by stage and just sort of go eliminating maybe on certain days or certain places meat because that sort of phasing in strategy is how it worked for me. And then, fourthly, and finally, I just think stop apologizing for not eating meat and not eating dairy, in, in my case, or if you go vegan. Because, like, actually, people don't mind. You know, even my parents, who were brought up in a very different generation and they constantly worry about what I'm eating, they're very happy to cook vegan food, most people. If you go to a dinner party, I know people who are too embarrassed to sort of cause the hassle. But people who are putting on a dinner party want you to have a nice time. They don't want you to be sort of eating stuff that you've sort of decided is unethical. So I just think if you're open about it without being evangelical, but you just say, look, I don't eat this, then people will adapt. And it's like there are so many gluten allergies and whatever, lactose intolerance and all this stuff that, you know, being a vegetarian or vegan is not not this terrible thing. For me, I've learned to cook over the last few years that I've been vegan. And like using lots of miso, I now eat lots of kimchi or when I'm feeling... A slightly poorer sauerkraut and yeah I think there's lots of flavors out there and I don't miss meat I think you know and I hope one day in maybe two or three years there'll be a really good vegan pizza that I can have that's that's the missing piece of the puzzle.
0: Has it affected your lunch interviews at all?
1: I just feel like I'm boring readers by mentioning my diet, so I now don't even <laughs> I don't even mention it. I really am, um, I'm so conscious of like not being the guy who's like, how do you tell if someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. I'm really conscious of not <laughs> being that guy. But yeah, actually, the, the last place I went, which was an Indian restaurant, I was like, oh, I'm slightly struggling here. There's something I can have, something else I can have, and I was like to the waiter, are, 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 are these the vegan options. He was like, oh, I'll bring you the vegan menu. And I interviewed Daniel Hannan once in a former. Butchers in Brussels. That was, that was the low point when I ended up ordering (laughs) sweetbreads. slightly accidentally
2: well I want to know what Sarah Duchess of York slash Fergie made of your veganism when you interviewed her for that great FT lunch recently
1: she was on board with it she'd actually bought a copy of my book and got me to sign it it was all very weird she was like so mad for everything that I think she was okay with veganism in the end and I'm not sure she went for the fish or something didn't she so I think once we were drinking pink champagne everything was fine
2: (laughs) I don't drink at lunch
1: Prince Andrew's in safe hands
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyanne, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray, and our guest, Henry Mance. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review.